0: This is TSFPN.com, the sci-fi podcast network. You've found the best podcasts in the universe.
1: It's Friday, the 21st of October, 2005, and you're listening to The Secrets. Welcome to this podcast of The Secrets, a podcast for anyone who is serious about writing. The Secrets Home can be found at www.stromwolf.com. For the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about writing and how to get you even closer to seeing your name on the spine of a book. Welcome to this 8th special edition of The Secrets. This podcast is a logical follow-up to the previous trilogy. Those three pretty much covered everything you need to know about getting started and keeping going until your project is done. This podcast is built out of the questions I've gotten over at the forums at the Sci-Fi Podcast Network or tsfpn.com, those questions, quite naturally enough, lead me to discuss the touchy subject of editing. I'm Michael A. Stackpole, a published novelist with 38 books to my credit. My eight Star Wars novels all made it to the New York Times bestseller list, an honor which keeps me happy even though I didn't have a winning ticket in the Powerball lottery last Wednesday. I'm especially qualified to go into the whole discussion of editing as I spent the last two days editing up a short story for an anthology. As most of you already know, the Secrets Podcast is an audio companion to my writing newsletter, which is also called The Secrets. It's one of those branding things. If you want to learn more about the newsletter, please head over to my homepage at www.stormwolf.com. There you can find some sample issues and information about subscribing. If you take a look at the index for the newsletter, which just had its 38th issue come out, you'll see a listing of all the articles and all the cool stuff that's actually been covered in the two years we've been doing the newsletter. Editing or revising is really a touchy subject for writers, largely because of the quantity and quality of it. Editors always want you to make too many changes. This is, of course, because you, the author, pretty much don't think that any changes need to be made. Authors often also question the quality of editing, but this is because we can be a bit cavalier with our use of the English language. We also get into self-mind speak. We know what's going on in the story, therefore it should be obvious to everyone else, and editors have a habit of pointing out that it's not. Neither editors nor editing are bad, and good writers learn to switch from writer mode to editor mode as needed. It might sound weird to suggest there are two folks inhabiting your head, But this dichotomy is very important. If you don't learn to turn the editor off, you'll never get anything written. And if you don't turn the writer off, you'll never see all the things that need to be changed. Editors who are not inside your head do. So you have to develop that inside yourself. It's a whole symbiotic relationship, kind of a tag team, that turns out really good work if you let it function. It's also true that writers may have a preference for writing or editing. Some folks just chuck stuff out there and figure they'll fix it in the editing stage. Others agonize over each and every word, so the editor won't have anything to do. The balance between writer and editor is going to have to be something you work out for yourself. But a clue to your having an imbalance is this. One or the other side prevents you from actually finishing anything. What do I mean by that? Well, when the editor's not surrendering the wheel, the impetus is to keep going back over things until they're perfect, which doesn't get you any closer to the end of the book. Many times an editor will tell a writer that a story isn't good enough, so nothing further gets written, you don't do the revisions, you just throw your hands up in the air and surrender because you will never be good enough. On the other hand, the writer assumes that every word is golden, so he continues writing along even though he's headed for a dead end. When he gets there, he refuses to acknowledge any mistake has happened and keeps pounding his head against a stone wall. Aside from not being good for the wall, this can lead a writer to thinking he's got writer's block, and that's a problem that will kill a career dead. And not fast either. It's pretty much career suffocation. It is not pretty. If the short story I just finished is a good example for me, I guess I strike the balance pretty easily. I'd been given an assignment for a piece running roughly 6,000 words in length, and nothing popped up as an idea for me immediately. I gave myself room to think about it, and late one evening while driving off to a bar to listen to music, I hit on the key to the story. Once I knew the twist that would pull things together, it was pretty easy to lay out a plot that would get me from beginning to end. The main problem I had, however, was that I really didn't have much, if any, story arc for the main character. Would he change or grow through the story? Well, sort of, but not very much. This is largely because of the nature of the assignment. The stories were to focus on problems of having fantasy creatures as parts of armies and the tactics one would have to use to deal with them. In essence, the assignment called for lock and key stories. Nothing wrong with them, but it really de-emphasizes character growth, especially when you're working with a little tiny story. But when I started, I had a lock and I had a key, which is all I needed to outline stuff. The writer in me started, and I got a third of the way in when I ran out of steam. The protagonist and his enemy had just gone through a dramatic chat, which I liked. But all that left for me was a bunch of battling. I wasn't looking forward to that, so I set things aside for a bit. A bit, in this case, turned out to be about ten days. When I came back, I reread about the last page of the story, and then launched into the lock and key part of the story. From there, in the same afternoon, I got to the mano a mano battle between hero and villain, then wrapped the story up. The writer in me was satisfied, but the editor wasn't. Still, it wasn't time for the editor to get a shot at the manuscript. This brings me to the first question from the forum. How long should a story rest before you revise it? That's a really good question. It assumes that there should be a resting period between drafts, and that is a good idea. It gives you some perspective on things. I find that I often remember chapters as being worse or better than they actually are, and a little distance from them lets me figure out what needs to change to make it all work. There's no hard and fast rule for how long you should let a story sit. Long work, like novels, probably take a couple of weeks to a month, but that's somewhat relative. If you wrote it in spurts, say, so that you've not looked at the first third of it in over six months, you could start revising that part of the book the day after you finished the last page. Mind you, you could. As far as I'm concerned, if you finished a novel, you deserve at least a week off. My editors tend to disagree, but that's, you know, deadlines and stuff. The amount of time you let something sit around also depends upon your level of experience. The short story I mentioned sat for about a day before I started editing it. Then again, it was past deadline, and I've actually done this before. My editor clicked in, and I almost immediately saw what the big problem was with the story. I'll get back to that in just a second, right after I finish off this time issue. The first thing you don't want to do is let something short sit for years before you go back and fix it. When a short piece is stale, meaning you've gotten much better since you wrote it, it's really tough to revise it and save it. Get it inside a month or so, polish it up, do a third draft if you must, and then start looking for a market for it. Hey, before I go any further, there's a quick message that I want you to take a listen to from Mer Lafferty, who's one of the hosts of a writing show over at TSFPN. We'll be right back after that and we'll continue discussing editing.
0: Hi, this is Mer Lafferty from Geekfoo Action Grip. I'd like to take a break from this excellent podcast to tell you about Hurricane Katrina. Well, It's very likely you already know about Hurricane Katrina. But what you may not know, and what may interest you, is that in the wake of the disaster, several professionals from the RPG industry, including writers, editors, illustrators, and layout, got together and wrote a book. Beyond the Storm, Shadows of the Big Easy, is a collection of short stories, essays, art, and role-playing game materials inspired by the culture, landscape, and city of New Orleans. With contributions from three continents and from across the spectrum of role-playing, the book has all proceeds from the sale going to support Katrina disaster relief. Join the authors and artists as they explore the Big Easy as it could have been and how it might be in the future. Beyond the Storm is now available for purchase in PDF and print formats. You can check it out at lulu.com or beyondthestorm.us.
1: Hey, welcome back. Over in the TSFPN forums, we have a critiquing group. It's run by Murr, and it's connected with a writing podcast titled, I Should Be Writing. Editing and critiquing have a few things in common. So what follows is an answer to two questions. How do you approach editing, and how do you approach critiquing? I tend to work at both on a triage system. I look for the biggest problems first and figure out how to fix them. I do this when I'm reading someone else's work or looking at my own. Structural problems come first. Does the plot work? Could events unfold the way they do? Does the author have his technology correct? Does the author have a grasp on grammar and spelling? In a critiquing situation, I pick out the biggest problem I can find and suggest ways to correct it. Not what I would do were I writing the story, but methods that will let anyone fix problems. When critiquing, it's important to say, you could try this or you could try that instead of saying, I'd do this. The person being critiqued feels less pressure to do it your way, which means they're more likely to actually fix problems that you're pointing out. In Wildest Dreams, that's the title of the story I was working on, I realized the big problem was a lack of emotional engagement with the hero. As I said before, this was really no big surprise since it's a lock and key story. Still, I was able to find a couple of spots in the story where I could fix that. Add a sentence here, a dialogue there, a few reaction shots, and suddenly we're a little bit more deeply involved with the character. I also rewrote the final fight scene. What I'd done initially worked, but I needed the shift. It cut about a page from the story, which was running long anyway, and sharpened the focus of the action. It made the final twist a bit sharper, which also was really good. After taking care of the large problem, I went through line by line and made sure that the facts lined up, that the words were spelled correctly, the dialogue still scanned after revisions, and I generally got rid of words and phrases I didn't need. In some ways that last is the most difficult thing to do because the phrases aren't wrong and they're not bad, they're just superfluous. You can miss that if you're not looking for it, and pulling them out will make an editor very, very happy. Now this story was written in first person. For anyone who can't remember third grade English, that's a story where the story is told from the same way this podcast is. I did this, I did that. First person is very immediate. You're right inside the skin of a character. If I recall correctly, I never mentioned my hero's eye or hair color, mainly because it wasn't important. And he never passed by a mirror. And for those of you who didn't see me put the clutch in, I've sort of shifted from talking about editing to talking about point of view because this is another question that showed up on the forum I've done a lot of work in first-person and I like it when I write first-person stories I tend to be able to write them very quickly I Jedi for example was written in 31 days out of a 41-day period because the story is so immediate and the voice remains consistent throughout the book first-person projects write fast and are a good place to start for beginners if you're always writing from that I point of view You don't have time to worry about getting lost in other people's heads. There are a couple of downsides to using first person. First off, a lot of readers don't like first person, so they won't read your novel for that reason alone. Well, not much you can do about that, but you should be aware of it, because if you write in first person, you're going to hear from folks how they just hate it. Second, it's tough to keep a secret from the readers, since the viewpoint character knows the secret in my Dragon Crown War books, the character Hawkins is told a secret in the Dark Glory War. That book's written in first person from his point of view and he doesn't share this secret with the reader. Now Hawkins is clearly writing his memoirs many years later and in the Grand Crusade you actually get to see him working on those memoirs. And he refuses to reveal that secret because he doesn't want to ruin the reputations of people who are still alive. It's a little conceit that you can get away with sometimes, but not very often. Third, with a first-person novel, it's tough to get a perspective on what's going on elsewhere with the bad guys. You're stuck in one character's head for the duration. So, unless the villain does that James Bond thing where he tells Bond all of his plans before he kills him, you're really kind of stuck. You won't know what's going on out there. This doesn't mean you can't have suspense. It just has to be developed differently. Now, there are a few authors, Jack Williamson, Nelson DeMille, and and me, uh, by way of example, who have mixed first- and third-person perspectives in novels. These hybrids are pretty rare creatures, and for a good reason. They consistently remind the reader that it's a book they're reading, not someone's diary. If the books are done well, it's not a big problem. If they aren't, well, there's a book that likely will end up on some shelf in a used bookstore. Fred Saberhagen has written a novel, The Holmes Dracula File, that alternates between two sets of first-person chapters. The story is told from the points of view of Dracula and Dr. Watson. That was a brilliant book, but that's because Fred is brilliant. This is not something we all can do. The other most commonly used point of view is third person. He did this, she did that. We're all used to reading novels like this. Third further breaks down into two classes omniscient and focused. In omniscient, the narrator is a godlike figure that can see all the events everywhere, can get into anyone's heads, and leads to the use of phrases like meanwhile back at the ranch and other cliches. The problem with omniscient point of view is that it invites narrator interjection, which is just a great way to boot readers straight out of the story. We don't want to be reminded the author is out there, so tossing that sort of stuff in kind of ruins it. Omniscient used to be popular back when novels were first developed, not so much anymore, Avoid it if you can. Third-person focused means you stay in the head of one character at any one time. The only time you switch to the head of another character is in a new chapter or after a three-line break in the text. You stay focused because it keeps the reader from being confused about whose head he's supposed to be in. Sure, there are authors who violate this rule. Donald Westlake in one of his Dortmunder novels goes from mind to mind of all the players in a poker game. He does that to reintroduce the characters to us, but then he snaps back into the head of the character that started the sequence. There he remains for the rest of the chapter. But Westlake is a genius, and the Dortmunder novels are pure gold. Try them if you haven't. So he can do it. Anyone listening to this podcast, myself included, probably shouldn't try that trick. The tough question with point of view is this. How do you know if you're telling the story from the right point of view or not? There's actually a simple answer. With one minor exception, point of view characters are the characters who are going to grow and change because of your story. If you do not see a growth arc for a character, they shouldn't be a point of view character, period. Why waste words giving us their perspective on things if you're not going to show us how it affects and changes them? There's no sense to it, so don't do it. What is the exception? Spot point of view characters. There are going to be situations in a novel where you need someone to be on site so the reader understands what's going on. Most commonly, this is the night watchman who learns about a burglary then is killed. You'll be seeing that scene through his eyes and guys like Stephen King are great at characterizing such people in a sentence or two, but he's not going to continue in the story, so he really doesn't count as a point of view character. There is one caveat to all of this. In my Dragon Crown War books, I created Prince Earlstoke as a spot point-of-view character. I needed someone at Fortress Draconis so we could watch it fall. He did his job, but he didn't die at the end of Fortress Draconis. This put him in a perfect position to do something else for me in the next book. Well, he survived that one too. So in that book and through the next book, I developed a character arc for him. Earl Stoke grows and changes because of the events in his story. So, in one book he was a spot point-of-view character, but in the next two, since I continued to use him, I fleshed him out. A lot of writers may wonder which point-of-view character they should use to chronicle a scene where several of them appear together. There's a number of methods to use. When I'm writing a third-person novel and using multiple viewpoint characters, I usually develop a chapter rotation. In that case, the scene is shot from the point of view of whichever character's turn comes up. It keeps the rotation consistent and lets the reader fall into a rhythm that pulls him into the story. Another method would be to choose at random. It's inelegant, but it might work. A better method would be to choose the character who would give you the most challenge in the writing. I like that idea because it forces you to write from a different perspective. You have to think a bit, and that never hurts. The important thing here is this, if a scene isn't working from one point of view, stop and start over from another. You want the scene to sing, so pick characters will have the most impact on. Later, if you need to, you can have another character reminisce about that scene and tell us what was going on in his head at the time. You'll cover all the bases and everyone will be happy. And happy, after all, is what we want. Another question came up and it regards an old bromide about writing. I've heard countless writers tell new writers that, quote, your first million words are crap. Write them, throw them away, and then you'll be a writer, end quote. I gotta tell you, I think that piece of advice is crap. I think it's a myth promoted by talentless writers who didn't get lucky and sell anything until their millionth and first word. The reason I think they didn't sell before that is because they were writing. They weren't working at writing. They were doing the stuff without any critical thinking involved at all, which means they never asked themselves why something worked or how they could do that again. They never analyzed the work of other writers to see how they made things come together. They're the sort of writers who couldn't be bothered listening to a podcast like this since they already know it all. These also tend to be the guys who lament the fact that you can't make a living at writing, that publishers will only buy from a select cadre of writers, and that their work is far too literary and innovative for anyone to understand them anyway. Boy, if I had a nickel for every one of them. Well, one thing is certain. If I did have a nickel for every one of them, it wouldn't have come from them. Uh, They certainly couldn't afford it. As I've said before in these podcasts, when you meet someone like this, run away do it fast. There's enough negativity in the business as it is. These are the kinds of folks who wander through lightning storms carrying flagpoles, then wonder why they keep getting hit by lightning. You don't need them. The next thing we'll touch on here is the role of humor in writing. Humor is vital because it provides a contrast and provides humanity in a story. It may just be me, but I really can't think of any situation in my life where I couldn't find some humor somewhere. Even if it's black and grim humor, it's still humor. More importantly, when people laugh, they assume they're having a good time. It might not be true, but it's just how the brain is wired. They might never remember the story they were reading, but they will remember laughing. Writing humor is very difficult, and not everyone can do it. Writing a laugh riot novel is all but impossible, and I greatly admire those who can do it. Still, Slipping things in to make folks smile and laugh is something every writer should be able to do. Learning how to do it, if it doesn't come naturally to you, is simple. Read books about stand-up comedy. Watch comics work. Analyze things that you read that make you laugh. While humor takes talent, there are skills out there that you can develop to be able to put humor into your work. All right. I want to recap a little bit here, and it's readily apparent to me that I'm going to have to do another show on editing, so next week you'll probably get part two of editing. When you're editing, you want to make sure that your characters grow. You want to provide emotional content and balance it through the use of drama, action, romance, and humor. You want to make sure you hook up all the little threads in your story or discard the ones you aren't using. You want to render the work in your native tongue, or whatever language you expect it to be read in. And in this, grammar does count. So does spelling. And please, learn to spell. Spell checking only goes so far. It won't correct the word made where you intended to use the word made. Besides, learning to spell is a chance to build your vocabulary. If you want to be a writer, you definitely want to build a vocabulary. Carpenters can't work without nails. Authors can't work without words. How do you know when a story's done? I've mentioned before using the 10% rule. If the change from the previous draft to the current draft involves 10% of the words or less, the story's done. Send it out. One special word about editing your work in accordance with advice offered by a critique group. In most cases the advice offered by critique groups will be good should pay attention to it, take it to heart, play with it, and see if it works for your story. You really have to take an objective look at it and give it a fair chance, and that can be difficult. Still, try it. You'll find that folks can see problems in your work that they can't see in their own, and vice versa. On rare occasions, however, there are going to be folks in critique groups who have their own agenda. Imagine, for example, trying to write techno thrillers and shopping them around to a group in which everyone else is writing romance novels. They're all going to tell you that your characters aren't revealing their emotions enough. This may, in fact, be true, and probably is. But that advice isn't very useful given where you're trying to place your story. That's the benign form of these destructive critiques. Sometimes groups will have a person who ends up sabotaging the work of others because they're bitter or jealous. They don't want anyone in the group to get ahead of them, so they'll hold you back. There are even groups where this will be the most senior writer, someone with a couple of novels out there. These writers are looking at making everyone else into their apprentice, kind of a Darth Maul, Darth Sidious kind of thing. So you want to be careful about that. This is why I suggest that whenever you get advice, you play with it and see what works. If it doesn't work, don't use it. If the person persists in trying to give you this sort of advice, again, you feel a Darth Sidious to your being Darth Maul, look for another group. You want to be surrounded by people who want you to succeed as much as you want them to succeed. That way you'll all be working together, pulling in the same direction, and that's the kind of support group you want. Ultimately, editing is to writing what putting is compared to hitting off a tee in golf. It's where you make things the best you can. Don't be afraid to be ruthless, but don't feel compelled to be overly harsh. Both the writer and the editor in you want the work to blossom, so take turns and make it as close to perfect as you can. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. I really appreciate everyone who shared the secrets with friends and other writers. Please, if you know anyone you think would benefit from the show, let them know about it. My secret goal here is having the whole New York Times list dominated by listeners to The Secrets. Keep listening, keep sharing, keep writing, and we'll get there one and all. This is Michael A. Stackpole for The Secrets. You can find out more about my writing newsletter at www.stormwolf.com, including getting sample issues, looking at the index, learning how to subscribe. The podcast also has a discussion forum at www.stormwolf.com tsfpn.com. Please feel free to come over there, ask questions, participate in the discussions about writing, give me ideas for next week's podcast on editing. Thank you. This podcast is copyright 2005 by Michael A. Stackpole. I'll be back in a week or so with more about writing, working with words, and finding ways to confound that third grade English teacher who never thought you were going to go anywhere anyway. Have fun with your editing and good luck with your writing.